You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors of Liberty Church, and grateful to have you with us as we're continuing our uh, celebration of the season of Advent this morning. Uh, last week, we began our Advent series uh, by looking at the divinity of Jesus Christ, uh, that he was fully God, is fully God, and why that's so important, the difference that that, that, that makes to our lives and to this world. Uh, so this morning, we're going to shift our focus, and we're going to look at the humanity of, of Jesus, uh, that while remaining fully God, Jesus also became fully human. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that Elise just mentioned, page 1001 uh, is where our text today will begin. But as you're turning there, you can maybe think about this with me. Uh, You might imagine uh, not as many people object to Jesus' humanity as they do to Jesus' divinity. Uh, Almost everybody, almost everybody, acknowledges that around 2,000 years ago, there was this man named Jesus walking on the earth, teaching, preaching around Israel and Palestine, and that in the years since, he has become a, a figure of great historical significance. But there are two general categories of people who seem to really struggle with the full humanity of Jesus. One category, one group, consists of hyper-spiritual people. Maybe people who would describe themselves as being spiritual, but not religious. And for them, or at least many of them, the idea that something beyond us, something divine even, would be present in this world is not only plausible, it's desirable. They're excited about that idea that something beyond us, something spiritual might come and dwell here among us. But often people in this group tend to devalue the physical and material aspects of life. Uh, We would agree with people who believe this way, that, that this physical material world is corrupted and broken. So for them, a perfect existence would mean a a purely spiritual existence. And if Jesus, therefore, is fully human, he would be polluted, he would be tainted by that humanity, by that physical material aspect of his life. He would would not be able to be purely spiritual. So they struggle with this idea. The other group, or the other category, interestingly enough, tend to be uh, religious fundamentalists, even more fundamentalist types of Christians. Now, they might not reject outright the doctrine of Jesus' humanity, but for fear of being irreverent, that's often the motivation, for fear of being irreverent, they tend to emphasize the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. So even if you're, if you're here this morning, even if you're not a, a religious fundamentalist, maybe you'll agree this morning as you start to think about it that, that you've never really thought that much about all the, the, the details and implications of Jesus' full humanity. That he as a as a human male child that was born and that grew up into adulthood, that he went through puberty, for example. Uh, That Jesus, like all of us, had to use the restroom. He had to stop and take breaks along the road at times. That Jesus slept. That maybe he even snored sometimes when he slept. Very human things. Some of us, with what I really think is often a good desire to be respectful, to be reverent, downplay Jesus' humanity so much that it all but disappears. And what I hope you see this morning, particularly if you're more inclined to do that, 
is how much that robs you, how much that robs others of the peace and the help that is truly offered to you through the full humanity of Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm going to invite you to contemplate the humanity of Jesus and and to begin, or maybe to do this again, to see and to savor and to more avail yourselves of all of the benefits of the incarnation of the full humanity of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll begin there in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, or the word in Greek there means brothers and sisters, siblings, saying, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let me pray for us and for our time this morning. Father God, you remind us always, but especially in this Advent season, that the darkness of sin and ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. So may your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, now shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and to the living of this radiant truth. It is in the name of Jesus we pray, for he is the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Just like we did uh, last week when we looked at the divinity of Jesus, we're going to break down looking at his humanity into two parts. We're going to look at indications and implications. So indications of Jesus' humanity, where in Scripture do we see it attested, affirmed that Jesus is fully human? And then implications, what difference does that actually make? So first, indications, indications of Jesus' humanity. Uh, And I should mention again, I mentioned this last week, but I'm really indebted to several other people for their scholarship in putting this this series and this sermon together. If if this was a paper, uh, instead of a sermon, there would be a lot of footnotes. Uh, A lot of footnotes in today's sermon, uh, giving some credit to people like Robert Peterson, uh, Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a great systematic theology some years ago, uh, the editors of the ESV Study Bible, a number of other people. Uh, If you're ever interested in doing a deeper dive into the divinity and humanity of Jesus, I'd be happy to point you in the direction of some really good uh, resources in that. This text that we're in this morning in Hebrews 2 actually focuses a lot more on the implications of Jesus' humanity. So we'll come back to that more in a moment. But notice, even as we read it, that this text is actually able to assume 
the full humanity of Jesus as fact. It's just able to take it at face level, Jesus was fully human. And it's able to do that because of all of the indications that were recorded elsewhere in Scripture about Jesus' humanity. So let's just step our way through, through a few of those in some of our time this morning. Indication number one. Number one, Jesus experienced the weaknesses and limitations of a human being. God neither slumbers nor sleeps, the psalmist once wrote. But Jesus did both of those things. Jesus became tired. Jesus got hungry and thirsty at various points of his life and ministry. Jesus was also tempted. In James chapter 1, the apostle writes that God cannot be tempted with evil. But James's brother, they, they shared the same mother, Mary. Jesus, James's brother, was tempted. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He was tempted by weariness and anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we were to keep reading in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, we would read that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet was without sin. As he took on flesh, there were also limits to Jesus' knowledge. No one including me, Jesus said in Mark 13, knows the day or the hour of of God's consummation of all things. No one knows that except the Father. And then in Luke chapter 2, for example, we read, Jesus increased and grew, not only physically in stature, but also in wisdom. Jesus gained wisdom over the course of his human life. Jesus even, Hebrews chapter 5, learned obedience. He learned something. Not that he was disobedient and had to then become obedient like you and I do, but as he lived a fully human life, he learned more and more how to fully obey God's commands. It wasn't automatic. He wasn't wasn't living some kind of quasi-human existence on autopilot. It was not easy for Jesus to live a sinless life. He had to learn obedience. Now this understandably creates questions for us, and it has for Christians for 2,000 years now. How could Jesus remain fully God while experiencing the weaknesses and limitations of a a human being? Scholars a lot smarter than I will start to say things like, Jesus laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. I don't think I could even come up with a statement that's that's that brilliant. But Jesus laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, he still was fully God. He still had all of his divine attributes, but he humbly and voluntarily chose not to exercise them in order to live a, a fully human life. In reality, no matter how much you will devote time, and, and it's worth devoting time to, no matter how much time you will devote to studying this, there will remain mystery as to the how of the incarnation. How is he fully God and fully man? 100% and 100%. We cannot grasp that fully. But there is no mystery to the eyewitness accounts. There is no mystery to the, to the fact, the observed and recorded fact that Jesus experiences, experienced the weaknesses and limitations of a human being. Indication number two. Number two, Jesus had human emotions. Human emotions. Uh, Jesus got angry. Jesus loved people in his life. He loved his mom, like many of us do. Uh, he loved his disciples. The apostle John was simply known as the beloved Jesus was also sorrowful at times. He wept. At other times, Jesus was happy. He made jokes. For example, he once said that it would actually be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. 
And on another occasion, he said of someone being hypocritical, that before you take the speck, the little tiny splinter of wood out of someone else's eye, it would be important to take the massive log that's stuck into your own eye. These are funny pictures where when Jesus was teaching them to the people that were listening, we're supposed to chuckle at the absurdity of those images. But here's how uncomfortable some people are with Jesus' humanity. That statement about the, the camel and the needle. Over the years, and maybe you've heard this yourself if you've been around the church for some number of years, over the years, some have tried to find very non-humorous explanations for that teaching. Like, for example, maybe there was a small gate in a city, and it was called the needle's eye. And a camel that would you know, have to pass through this narrow gate would have to take off all of its material things, have to unburden itself of its cargo, maybe get down on its knees and pass through this small gate. And so Jesus, of course, then would be teaching that rich people need to forsake the trappings of wealth. They need to take off the material things and unburden themselves of it. Now, the problem with that is it's just not there at all. In scripture, in archaeology, it's just not there. It's just not there. And Jesus, in context, was saying, not that it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, it's impossible that actually, apart from God's intervening mercy, it won't happen. And he's using this funny picture, this massive camel, passing through the eye of this little, I can't even thread a needle with thread. Like, I'm, I'm infuriated at the attempt of threading, need, like threading a needle, let alone a camel passing through a needle. But you can see here, this is, this is a subtle and relatively small example of this. But if you've been told that whole gate and kneeling camel story, you've actually been robbed of some of the picture of Jesus' full humanity. That's actually been taken away from you if you're given that story. And you can see how these kind of little things add up and how uncomfortable some people really are to acknowledge Jesus' full humanity, including things like humor, laughter, jokes. There is, we read in Scripture, church, one difference One difference between Jesus and all of us, every other human being, and that is sin. That's sin. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. Jesus was not, by nature or choice, a sinner. But that's it. He experienced every human emotion. It was only that his emotions were untainted by sin the way ours are. We'll keep going. Indication number three, Jesus not only had human emotions, he had human experiences. Human experiences. Like all human beings... Jesus was born. He passed through a birth canal. He had an umbilical cord. He took his first breath. He cried. When the hymn, Away in a Manger, says, no crying he makes, it's imagining Jesus waking up after falling asleep and taking a little bit of of a nap and waking up peaceful. If it was suggesting that Jesus didn't cry at all when he was born, first of all, I have no idea in Scripture where they would have gotten that idea. And second, they would actually be rejecting Jesus' full humanity. He cried coming out of the birth canal just like you did, just like I did. As we've already seen, Jesus learned and he grew. He shares those human experiences. He, he even grew some through the practice of spiritual disciplines. He attended worship. He prayed. He memorized scripture. He practiced solitude. Jesus celebrated holidays. He went to parties. Though he was neither, he was accused by the Jewish leaders of being both a glutton and a drunkard, which means, at least at a minimum, that he at times was feasting with friends and that almost certainly he was drinking wine at times. We'll talk about this more in a little while, but Jesus also suffered like only a human being could suffer. To share the experience of the human experience of suffering, he had to become human. He, he felt physical pain, he died. 
God doesn't die. God cannot die. But human beings do. And so Jesus was buried. His physical body was taken off of the cross. It was wrapped up in cloths. It was placed into a tomb. And reflecting on all of these things some years later, the Apostle John seems to just be marveling at all of these shared embodied physical experiences that he had with Jesus. And he writes in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, acknowledging his divinity, that which was from the beginning, but then he goes on to say, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. These are sensory words. These were embodied physical experiences. The apostles lived a human life with Jesus. He lived a fully human life alongside them. And the last one that we'll look at today, indication number four, Jesus had a human relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. A human relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Though he is equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit, Jesus' years on earth were marked by a human relationship with them. Jesus made himself subordinate to the Father. He would say things throughout his ministry on earth like, the Father is greater than I. It was the Father who gave Jesus life in himself. It was the Father who gave Jesus the authority that he exercised as he taught on earth. It was the Father who gave Jesus work to do. Jesus was the one obeying the Father's commands, not the other way around. And related to this, Jesus lived a human life of dependence on the Holy Spirit. You think about this, maybe you've never thought about this, but if you're, if you're God the Son, if you're equally God, if you're part of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit, then you already have everything that the Holy Spirit could possibly give you. You don't need to be empowered by the Spirit if you are part of God with the Spirit. But as a fully human man, and Luke is especially intent to highlight this in his gospel, his account of Jesus' life. As a fully human man, Jesus is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. He's baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He is led multiple times in the gospel of Luke. He is led by the Holy Spirit. So though he remains fully God, Jesus has a human relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. These aren't all of them, but these are some of the, the primary indications that we see in Scripture of Jesus' humanity. And now that you know, we're kind of warmed up a little bit, we've got those fresh in our minds, let's now turn to consider some of the implications of this. Why is Jesus' full humanity so important? Why is it so necessary? And this is where our Hebrews 2 passage really is helpful and striking in so many ways. So if you set that aside for the past few minutes, grab that again. Uh, as we walk our way through it. I'm going to mention four implications this morning. Value, victory, sympathy, and solidarity. So first up, implication number one, value. Value. And here's what I mean. Because Jesus partook of flesh and blood, we see the goodness of God's creation and the worth of human beings. The goodness of God's creation and the worth of human beings. God created the physical, material world, and called it what? Good. He called it good. Sin has pervasively corrupted that goodness. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ is God's exclamation point on the worth of the material world. It's the exclamation point. Salvation will not be only spiritual. Salvation will not be escapism. 
God will not abandon the physical world to the effects of sin. He will redeem the world. He will restore the world to that goodness it had in the beginning. As we sing each Advent season in the song, Joy to the World, Jesus comes to make God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Whatever the scope is of all that sin is pervasively corrupted and fractured, it's the same scope that Jesus comes into the world to redeem, to bring God's blessing. Furthermore, the incarnation is the exclamation point on the value and worth of your life as a human being. God, of course, declared this in creation at the beginning by making human beings his image bearers. But look again here in Hebrews 2 at verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. And then verse 16, surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God loves and values all of his creation. But I hope you hear this this morning. I hope you especially have a sense of this in the Advent season. You have a special place in the heart of God as a human being. You have a special place in the heart of God. Jesus did not enter into the world as a plant. He did not enter into the world as an animal. And what's more, even though there are angels who rebelled against God and could have been redeemed if Jesus came into the world as an angel, he didn't do that. He came for the children. He came for humanity. He shares our flesh and blood. It's, it's really sobering, at least to me, maybe it will be to you too, to think that one of the main differences between me and Satan is that there's no hope of redemption for Satan. And there is for me. And there is for you. Why? Because Jesus did not help angels. He took on flesh and blood. Took on flesh and blood. Jesus partaking of flesh and blood, it actually redeems our whole understanding of what it means to be human. He, he is the picture of what humanity looks like without the corruption of sin. It's not our humanity that's the problem. We sometimes start to think that subtly like, man, humanity is rough. And it is rough. But our humanity itself is not the problem. Sin that corrupts the humanity, that's the problem. That's the problem. As we see Jesus, we get a glimpse of what we one day will be when we are finally free from sin in our own lives and all the effects of sin in this world around us. So see in the humanity of Jesus the value of God's physical creation and the value of your own humanity. Implication number two, victory. Victory. Because Jesus died, he destroys and he delivers. So in order to deliver us from the enemies of our souls, the enemies of our lives, Satan, sin, and death, Jesus had to die. He had to, in order to destroy these enemies, verse 14, Jesus had to pass through death. And in order to pass through death, Jesus had to become fully human. His humanity is what enables his perfect obedience to God. His humanity is what sets up what we sometimes call the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5, that Jesus could actually take our sin upon himself and simultaneously impart his record of perfect obedience, his righteousness to us. His humanity is what enables him to become the better Adam. We sung about that earlier this morning. As Paul writes in Romans 5, it was by one man's disobedience, the first Adam, that the many were made sinners. But so also it will be by another man's righteousness, another man's obedience, that the many will be made righteous. I mentioned last week the Archbishop of Canterbury years and years ago, a man named Anselm, who said essentially, only man should, 
Only God could. Only man should, only God could. Only man should pay the debt of sin that you and I owe to God. But we are incapable of repaying it. Only God has the power to to save. But if God were to become fully human, if he were to somehow share our own nature and find a way to repay that debt for us, then that would be the answer to our dilemma, would it not? And that's exactly the reason, friends, for Jesus' incarnation. As the author of Hebrews puts it here in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be. There was no other way. As that verse continues, Jesus' humanity allows him to become both our priest and our propitiation. Our priest and our propitiation. He can now, as a full human being, as a fully human man, represent humanity to God as our perfect priest. But he is also the propitiation. Where other priests would offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to propitiate God's wrath, to take God's wrath away, Jesus offered himself. He became the victim himself. As a man, he could become the substitutionary sacrifice in the place of men and women like you and me. See, it's Jesus' humanity, full divinity as well, but it's his humanity that enables his victory. By partaking of flesh and blood, he can destroy sin while delivering sinners. He can destroy Satan while delivering the children. He can destroy death while delivering those who brought it into the world, which is us. Only man should, only God could, but by taking on flesh, only Jesus did. Implication number three, number three, sympathy. Sympathy, because Jesus was tempted, because Jesus suffered, he sympathizes with our weakness. As God the Son, Jesus has always been compassionate. He's always been compassionate. It's kind of popular nowadays in some circles to, to like divide the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament and set them against one another, which does incredible damage to the unity of Scripture. And it's actually just not even there in Scripture. Jesus is part of the Godhead, the triune God, who is identified in the Old Testament over and over again as merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's the one whom the psalmist writes of in Psalm 103 that Jesus, as God, knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. There's compassion in God long before Jesus came into the world. But think about the difference the incarnation makes in Jesus' ability to sympathize with us. The human weaknesses that he had never experienced, the temptation It was impossible for him to be tempted. He's now experienced these things. It would be wrong for you and I to say that that Jesus loves us more because of the incarnation. His love has always been there. His love has always been perfect. But because of his incarnation, his compassion and his sympathy are now experiential. There's now a depth and a dimension to his love that would not be the case apart from the incarnation. So when the author of Hebrews says here in verse 9 that Jesus tasted death, that's an experiential word, is it not? He tasted it. He didn't sit far off in heaven and make a decree that death would be conquered. He came into the world so that he might actually experience it himself. He might taste it himself. And I don't know about you, but, but that dramatically increases my ability to comprehend the depth of the love that Jesus has for me. It just makes it that much more tangible 
Not that I can claim to comprehend it that much, but the little bit of the love of God that I maybe can comprehend comes by seeing that Jesus took on flesh in order to share in the very worst of what it means to be a human being. The very worst. It's, it's not like, this is kind of a throwback to a movie that's kind of old now. It's not like the movie City of Angels, if you've seen that, where Nicolas Cage wants to experience the best of humanity. He feels like he's been, he's missing something. As an angel, he's never experienced human love. He's like, Okay, I'm going to forsake being an angel to become a human so I can experience human love. Jesus lacked nothing. He had perfection. He wasn't looking down at us going like, man, they got something I don't. I want, I want in on what they've got down in that broken, sinful world. No, Jesus had all of that. He had perfect love and communion and relationship with the Trinity. He had all of that. He took on flesh to enter into the worst of human experiences, suffering and temptation and even death. And it was thereby he was able to gain an experiential love, a sympathy that he would not otherwise have. Look again at verse 18 here. It is because Jesus suffered when tempted that he is able to help those who are being tempted, which is you and me. And the help, oh, that we would be able to just taste this a little bit more together in the Advent season, the help that you are offered as a suffering, tempted, weary, aging, dying person in this life because Jesus took on flesh. As one pastor put it, for those who are sick, abused, burned out, tired, bedridden, flat broke, tempted, weary, hated, lonely, and dying, the humanity of Jesus on his darkest days is encouraging. Without these insights into Jesus's life, it would be difficult for us to run to him in our time of need. Those experiences make him a compassionate friend. Compassionate friend. See, Jesus knows because of his incarnation, because of his full humanity, he knows the weariness of life in a world pervasively corrupted by sin. He knows what sin is always trying to take and it's always trying to take as much as it possibly can, is it not? It's always trying to take more from your life, from the lives of people you love, from this world. Jesus knows that he's tasted it. And therefore, his help, his compassion, his sympathy now has the full weight of his own experience behind it. The full weight of his own experience is behind his sympathy. It's because of Jesus' full humanity, you not only have a savior, your savior is sympathetic. Your savior is sympathetic. And the last one we'll look at this morning, implication number four, solidarity. Solidarity. Because we share one source, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Look there at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that is all of us who look to him in faith, all have one source. In order for us to have a chance to experience God's salvation, Jesus had to share our common humanity. As we've seen, as we've been talking about, the sympathy that he feels for you and for me is not a distant or detached kind of sympathy. It's not like how you and I might hear of people suffering or hear of famine or as we, even if we were praying together in the month of November, hear of persecution of people in a distant land and say, man, that must be hard. Gosh, and there's genuine sympathy in that, is there not? But it's not like that. It's not like that. In Jesus, his sympathy is solidarity. Whatever we have lived, he has lived. Whatever we are called to endure, 
he has endured. Dane Ortland, in a, a truly phenomenal book called Gentle and Lowly, he puts it this way. He says, it is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles, like a doctor prescribing medicine. It is also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. He's not just a doctor prescribing medicine. He's a doctor who's endured the same disease. And Ortland continues, Jesus shares with us our actual experience. He feels what we feel. He draws near and he speaks up longingly on our behalf. I'd invite you to consider this morning, what does Jesus speak up on your behalf? What is he saying? What is he speaking up? He is speaking up his joy to be identified with you. He is speaking his pleasure at sharing your humanity, at having the same source that you have. He is not ashamed, verse 11, to call you brothers and sisters because he shares your full humanity. So if your parents were ashamed of you, if you've had a pastor or a mentor or a spiritual leader in your life be ashamed of you, if your spouse or if your children or if your friends have been ashamed of you at some point in your life, or even if you have been ashamed of you because no one really knows how to lock you in a prison of shame like you do to yourself. You know who's not ashamed of you? Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed to call you brother, to call you sister. He claims you. He gladly, proudly identifies himself with you. Because he shares your full humanity, he is not ashamed. And I would submit to you this morning, there is no freedom from shame like the freedom that comes through the solidarity of Jesus' humanity. There's no freedom that comes like that freedom. And remember, Jesus' humanity endures forever. Though there was a time when he was fully God and not man, there will never again be a day when he is not both fully God and fully man. And that means, as the Heidelberg Catechism once put it, we have our own flesh in heaven. We have our own flesh in heaven. The one who forever shares our humanity will unashamedly claim you before the Father and before all of God's people for days without end. All of this, friends, means that Jesus truly has become our peace. Our peace. It's what we celebrated this morning as Lois and Barry read for us at the Advent wreath. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that's not just a title given to him in a prophecy. It's what he actually brings through his full humanity. Objectively, positionally, you are saved through the flesh and blood, the sinews and muscles and, and flesh of Jesus Christ. He has broken down the dividing walls of hostility we read in Ephesians 2. How? In his flesh. Without the incarnation, there is no peace with God and there is no hope of peace with other people. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, then those walls are broken down and there is peace. And subjectively, experientially, how tormented is the soul, is a soul? And some of you know this from your own life and experience. How tormented is a soul that lives under the crushing weight of shame, that just can never quite live up, that always feels like it's not enough, that lives without sympathy, without help. There's no peace in that. There's no rest for you in that. 
But because the word was made flesh, there is infinite worth imparted to your human life. There is victory over death and over the sin that so attacks that humanity and tries to rob you of the real thing that God made good. The one who shared your sufferings and temptations, the one who has tasted death for you, has become your sympathetic savior. And he has become your perfect big brother who is happy and proud to claim you and to identify you with himself. And that, friends, that is peace. That is peace. May you see it and may you savor it this Advent season. Thanks be to God. We have our own flesh in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Christ Jesus, in life and in death, you alone are our hope. After we refused to live according to your image, you gave us such worth and value in how you created us. But after we refused to live according to it, you were born of the Virgin Mary. You shared our genes, our flesh. You spoke a human language in order that you might obey and perfectly fulfill the law of God. Being united with all that you are, with being united with your fullness by faith, being united to your humanity, We recognize our redeemed and renewed selves when we rest in you. So come, Lord Jesus. We await the fullness of your reign. We await the day that our humanity will be untainted by sin as yours was. And our hearts in this world will find peace in you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.